Good evening. We're glad y'all are here. It's a big night. If you don't know why, I'll explain why in a few minutes. I feel like this middle aisle is about three times its normal size. Like I've parted the sea and I'm walking through it by myself here. All right. I'm, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shift this way a little bit. And if y'all feel wronged in that, feel free to do the same. Because it's just bizarre. It's like 12 feet of nothingness. All right. I can't do it. It's imbalanced. Not symmetrical. Um, so the cord of firewood that is being auctioned off for our students, <clears throat> the bid is up to $350. Um, I think the actual value on it is right around 11600 so um, it's a great value for whoever's getting that, but if you've been outbid, don't worry, you can, you can outbid them. Just uh, email Ben or reply to the entire church and talk trash, do whatever you want, but we want, we want to drive that up as much as possible. So um, I've been outbid twice now, so, um, uh, so just go with it. Uh, also, if, if, if you do get outbid, don't forget we got all these um, uh, smaller bundles of firewood out there. They're $15 a piece. Um, I don't know if you add it up, but if you were willing to spend 300 on a cord, and you go out there, there's about 75 bundles, you know, I don't know how many bundles make a cord, but... We can all come out good on this if we work together, is what I'm getting at. So um, anyway, uh, tonight's a big night because um, this is our last Old Testament survey. Uh, I started teaching through Genesis in 2007. Um, I don't know if y'all got my email today, but it was the year that we lost Anna Nicole, but we gained the iPhone. The iPhone did not exist when we started this. At least we didn't know it did. So... Um, I only had one kid as opposed to the four I have now. And, uh, and so it's kind of, it, we've covered a lot of ground. It's been kind of neat to think of all the life change that we've walked through while we've walked through these particular large chunks of Scripture. Um, in 2007, I was still the youth and music guy, and, um, and I was uh, teaching the youth. And then in 2008, Ben went on his first sabbatical, and so I started teaching adults and youth, and then um, it just kind of stayed that way from that point on. So we, we went through Genesis for the better part of a few years, and then we spent a solid year and a half on Exodus, and then we got to Leviticus and said, no one wants to spend a year in Leviticus. Um, everyone will leave and quit coming to Wednesday Night Bible Studies if we do that. And what we started then was sort of a two, two weeks per book sort of uh, progression. And so um, that has brought us here uh, tonight to finishing uh, Malachi. So uh, that's kind of a kind of a high water mark. I'm encouraged by by where the Lord has brought us, and to be able to say as a church, hey, we we've taught through the Old Testament is is a pretty encouraging thing. And so, and I think what's more encouraging is what God has taught us through that as He's walked with us through all of that. So not patting ourselves on the back as much as we are praising God to have so much amazing goodness to dive into week in and week out. So let's pray. And then we will uh, get to it tonight. Lord, we are thankful uh, for this night. We're thankful for a, uh, another semester of um, getting to stop down in the middle of the week and consider your word. Uh, as we work through uh, Malachi tonight, Lord, I, I feel like it's just almost oddly timely given the state of the world and the things that the church struggles with. Um, so I really pray for, um, for each of us to be able to be attentive to the, to the details here, um, for each of us to be able to make connections, um, for each of us to stay in step with the Holy Spirit and to be shown what's true. Uh, we love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you don't know where Malachi is, turn to Matthew and take a left, and it'll be right there. Um, has anyone, I want to start with an opening question, and I want you all to be honest, because the more honest you are, the more funny this will be. Has anyone ever been really, really sincere about something, only to find out that you were completely wrong? Okay, that's a sincere lie, yeah. yeah. And so, everyone can say yes, I want to hear stories though, I want to hear when you were super, if you're married, you've had this happen, where you were super convinced and sincere and all in only to realize maybe at some point 
you are completely wrong. <laughs> Someone tells me you've been trained. How many stories are related to song lyric? Yeah, yeah. Yesterday. It doesn't have to be that, that recent. You don't have to be that honest. It was many years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, usually when you think you're really right and you get proved wrong, what immediately comes is, no, 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 here's my proof. Here's, here's, no, here's what I said, or here's, here's, what you, here's where you're wrong. Does anyone else have any other examples? Is this about you? Because it can't be about someone you're related to who's not here. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> well, that's nice. Yeah. I'm sorry I yelled at you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Anyone else got a, a good one, a juicy one, one more? Uh-oh. Oh, oh good, Mark. Go for it. Oh, even better. Oh, nice. Are you talking back to an officer of the law? That's probably one of them. Did you have one? Finish two ends. Is that what we're talking about here? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm finished. Nice. And now we all know you're finished. That's good. So here, here's my question. The uh, what's the difference between being wholehearted? What's the difference between wholeheartedness and sincerity? What's the difference between wholeheartedness and sincerity? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I'm going to go with the second part of your argument. 
Yeah, I, I think that the thing we're learning here and something that we're going to use as sort of a teaching tool tonight is that the difference between wholeheartedness and sincerity is if you are actually wholehearted. So you can think you're wholehearted in something, like you should pick these leaves up. I am a Finnish carpenter, whatever. <laughs> and you can think you're wholehearted, but because of a lack of details or, or knowledge, you're not. But when you're actually wholehearted, wholehearted, it's good. But you can be sincerely wrong. And so you, you talk about the... I think Ben shared an example of um, the guy that was driving the, the wrong way down the road. And man, he was, he was all in, hands at 10 and 2, going, but he was wholeheartedly going the wrong way. When they changed these access roads around, we experienced that fairly daily around here. It's like, you're going the wrong way. They're like, I got this, you know, <laughs> and they just keep on going. And so um, you can be sincere and you can be wrong at the same time. It's something that's important for Christian worshipers to know. You can be sincere and be wrong at the same time. And this is not a popular notion in our culture because our culture weighs the value of things largely by um, sincerity. And so I'm not promoting insincerity when I say this. I just want to scrutinize sincerity and wholeheartedness in this study. In Malachi, you need a little background, and so we're going to go through a couple background details and then jump into six or four, five, six, I don't know how many, um, uh, issues that God brings up with his people. So the background in Malachi, um, it says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi in the opening. And the background here is that this is 5th century BC, so the 400s. Um, a lot of people put the date of 418 on there because of other events. And here, here's where we're at. Do you all remember in Haggai, where they had been back for 16 years from exile, and they were just looking at their paneled houses, and they weren't focused on the temple? Well, I'm going to actually preach um, an Advent sermon on Haggai in the middle of December after Brad does the first two. But helping, remembering that helps us to understand what's going on here, because this is further along down the road. So here's where we're at. God's people have been brought back from Babylonian exile. Now, why did they go to Babylonian exile in the first place? Sin. Yeah, it was a result of their godlessness. It was a result of them turning from God. And so, as part of judgment, they were disassembled, disarrayed, and took into Babylonian captivity. And that was, I think, 586 was the year that is in our notes. Um, But here, they've returned from Babylonian captivity. The temple that we talked about in previous um, in previous studies, has been rebuilt thanks to Haggai and Zechariah. So their work was good and the temple was rebuilt. Um, worship has recommenced thanks to Ezra's teaching. And Jerusalem's, Jerusalem's walls have been rebuilt thanks to Nehemiah's effective leadership. So I want us to see where God's people are now. They're back in their land, in their homeland. Thanks to the leadership of Nehemiah, the walls have been rebuilt. Thanks to the teaching of Ezra, worship is is taking place again. And thanks to the Haggai and Zechariah, the temple has been rebuilt. And do you all remember some of the promises about this new temple that we studied before? Because this is important. What were some of the promises that God made about this new temple? Would it be like a JV version of the old temple? No. So better there. Wow. Man, I was was wholehearted. Um, uh, God said that, in fact, this temple would be filled with greater glory than even the temple of Solomon. And we know that the temple of Solomon was one of the most grand, amazing spectacles that the world has ever seen. And so God's made significant promises about this temple and about the restoration of his people in it. So that's the setting that we're in. They're back, the temple's up, the walls are up, the teaching's back up and going, and it's sort of like, hey, this is, this is a really good thing, right? To, to go from exile and not existing as a people who are of their, their own selves and of God to being restored by the hand of God. So all those things were in place. But what we're engaging in Malachi is that true worship still was not happening. 
So all the puzzle pieces are, are in place. The, the groundwork is set. But worshipers are not worshiping God truly, rightly, and wholeheartedly. So the first thing we see, look at 1, 2, through 5. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? As we go through Malachi, we see this repeated um, pattern of God saying something and his people questioning him about his observation and him giving a very clear answer as to why he is correct and why they need to know what he's telling them. And so here it says, um, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Interesting question for a bunch of people to pose who have their temple restored and the walls restored and the teaching restored and they're no longer in exile. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Just so you know, that wasn't Paul's idea. Paul in Romans 9, in those very uncomfortable verses for so many, is quoting Malachi. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, he's saying to his people, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What we need to see here, the first thing, is that part of worship of God is understanding God. God is absolutely mysterious, but not because that's his goal in all things. Um, Sometimes we talk about God in terms of, well, we we can't know this, or we can't know that, or I'll just... um, I remember my dad. My dad's one of the most humble people that I've ever met. He's a servant-hearted person. And I remember... Um, when we were younger and we'd ask questions, we'd, we'd always, we would never ask the easy questions because we wanted to ask the hard questions because that's what we cared about. I had three brothers. And so I have three brothers. And we would ask my dad, and my dad would say, you know, I don't know. I don't know, son. And I will ask when we get there. When we get there, we will ask the Lord and we will have the answer. And I got frustrated over the years because it was like, well, that's lazy man's theology and we can know answers and stuff. My dad was just genuinely humble. And there were some things that, he, he was okay with not being able to wrap his head around. What, what we learn here in this opening chapter, is that, in this opening verse, this opening chapter, is that God wants to be known. His goal isn't to be mysterious. And what he particularly wants to be known by here is that his greatness goes beyond the border of Israel. So the insinuation and the implication is that it has to, in fact, exist within the border of Israel to go beyond the border of Israel. So... Um, God wants them to know this in these opening lines. So from the details here, God is saying to them, um, and it's interesting because when he says they, they'll be the descendants of Esau will fall and they'll be scattered, within the next few decades that happens. And when he says you will see this and then you will say that I'm great, they actually got to see that happening after God said it. So just yet one of many, many, many fulfilled prophecies that we have seen. From the details above that I've mentioned, and the details we see in this little opening line here, we see God's work towards his people, and we see that he has a plan for his own glory. But as I've stated, true worship has not yet been restored. So the question that we're going to kind of dive into for a chunk of the night is why? With so many hurdles having been removed, what is keeping God's people from worshiping God the way he wants them to? That's the question we're looking at tonight. And I think it's a fairly easily personalizable question. I don't even know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. I think we can look at that and personalize it and say, why is it so hard for me to worship God wholeheartedly when he's removed so many hurdles? And he set it up for success. And I have so much redemption in Christ. What, what makes it difficult? What's getting in the way of... If we can understand what's getting in the way of these people worshiping God, these people who have been brought out of exile, these people who have been restored to their land, these people who have the temple, these people who have the walls back up, these people who have the teaching in place, if we can understand what is keeping them from worshiping God wholeheartedly when so many hurdles have been removed, it might help us to understand 
why we struggle with worshiping God wholeheartedly when we are among the most blessed people to ever walk the face of the earth. So look at chapter 3. What I want to do is look at the reasons behind why they're not worshiping wholeheartedly. And when we see the reasons, I want to look at the effect of those reasons, the effect of their heart, the behavior that's flowing out of what's going on inside of them. Look at 3.13. It says this. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. So this is another example of what I explained earlier where God says, this is what is true of you. And they say, how is that true of us? And then he explains, this is how. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Look over at 2.17. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say... How have we wearied him? His response is, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So what we're seeing here is what? You tell me. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah, questioning his control, seeing that the wicked are prospering. What else do we see here? Excerpts from your journal. Isn't it amazing how it can speak so directly when you hit particular parts of Scripture and it's like, the Lord is reading my mail. Yeah, so much so, they're saying obedience doesn't really have a reward, it would appear so. So much so, what, what do you think it means when God says, here's how you are wearying me? God says, you're wearying me by saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. What does, what does that mean? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's what he's accusing them of saying. What would they possibly mean by saying such a phrase? It'd be hard if someone in here said, hey, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. We'd look at them with our head cocked and be like, what, what are you talking about? What do you think they're saying in that? Yes. 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 They can see particular things and they can't see other things. So when they're going by what they can see, they're saying, you know what? Um, apparently, evil people are good in the sight of the Lord because from what I know about God is he rewards good. And so evil people must be good in the sight of the Lord because all these stinking evil people are just profiting and benefiting from all the good things of the land. They're good to go. And here we are, messed up. The, the, this temple is not as beautiful as the one before, much less you know, Solomon's temple that's the, that's the spirit of what's going on here. And they're looking around saying, you know what? I see a lot of terrible people doing a lot of terrible things to a lot of good people, and I see the good people suffering, and these terrible people that are doing it seem to be prospering and growing in number. Can we relate to that? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, 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 me neither. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, they're, they're really, if, if, we, if we look at it closely, they're saying, what's supposed to happen has not happened. What's not supposed to happen is happening. And I don't like God's timeline. And I don't like what he's not doing. And I frankly don't like what he is doing because if these people are prospering, they must be prospering by his hand. That's where they're at. That is the attitude that they have. 
The ESV has a note that's helpful. It says, to Malachi's contemporaries, it must have seemed that the prophet had committed a terrible blunder by citing the contrasting national fates of Israel and Edom as proof of Israel's favored status. Those opening lines where they're saying, well, Edom, God says, well, Edom's going to fall. Well, the reality is they're looking at Edom going, compared to us, Edom's amazing. Compared to Edom, we stink. We're lame. We're not even close to having the power, esteem, esteem and strength of Edom. And so it says, um, if God had chosen Jacob and Israel over Esau and Edom, why did he allow his people to suffer the total devastation of their country in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar? Why did he allow, if he favored Israel over over Esau and Edom, why did he allow 70 years of Babylonian captivity while Edom remained intact and seemed only to benefit from Israel's loss? They're just looking around. They're not cooking up things. That's what I want us to see here. Like, God's people have been plenty guilty of cooking up things that just were just completely false. Here, they're just observing. And it's interesting because in Malachi... It helps us, it's, it's totally different than all the other prophecies because it's like written in narrative as opposed to like judgment and there's sin and judgment and sin and judgment and oracles. It's like a narrative. We can just read it and just climb into it and be like, oh yeah, I've been there. I know what that looks like. What we're getting at is for, for God's people, at this point, as long as good people suffered and bad people prospered, some individuals wondered if God cared at all. Have you ever watched the news and wondered that? You ever checked Facebook 20 too many times in a day and thought that? If there's certain things that are just a complete discouragement to you, it's probably better to sort of temper those things and not just keep diving in and... and um, letting them feed off of you. Because here, they're seeing good people suffer and bad people prospering. And the, the conclusion is, does God care at all? Does he give one rip about what these terrible people are doing, these, these oppressive people are doing, these violent people are doing? Does he care at all? And if, if, if he doesn't, what's up with all this? You know what? It's in vain to serve God. It's in vain to serve God. That's what their words are. That, that's the conclusion they get to because of what they're observing. What is the stinking point is, is where they're at. This is, this is useless. So I, what I want us to see here is that this goes back to a really important point that we learned in a previous study. Remember what it said in, in Psalms about the, the guys who whittled the little idols and made them? What did those idols not have? In Psalms, there were these guys who were idol makers, actual idol makers. They had no power, couldn't speak, couldn't hear, couldn't see. And it says you become like, the, like your idol. You become like that which you worship. What we're seeing here is they're becoming like that which they worship. If you think that God is indifferent to injustice, then your view of God is an idol. God's never been indifferent to justice, to injustice. Like you're, that's, that's something that is so easy for sincere Christians to fall into. A view of God that's not right. And because it's not right, you begin to worship a not right view of God. You begin to worship God wrongly, and you become, you become like that which you worship. So what we're seeing here is that the inevitable result is that you become indifferent towards injustice if you're worshiping a God who you think is indifferent towards injustice. You will lack urgency in putting sin to death. You will wink at sin in your own life. You will not be concerned about sin in the life of other people because you don't think God actually cares about the well-being of anyone because apparently the wicked are prospering. So I want us to consider 
this attitude, this idolatry that had made its way into the hearts of God's people, how it affected their worship. So look at 1.6. It says, a son honors his father. I'm going to read a big chunk, 1.6 through 2.9. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? God's people are genuinely looking at God and saying, God, you're saying we're despising your name. We've got the temple, we've got the walls, we've got the teaching. How are we despising your name? They're, they're, it's, a, it's not just like the stupid question that sometimes your kiddos ask you where it's like, okay, seriously, I'm not even going to answer that because you know that you did this thing. They're genuinely like, how, how are we despising your name, God? And God says... By offering polluted food upon my altar. But they say, how, how have we offered polluted food on your altar? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And he goes on, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? He doesn't say, is that not less? Or is that not as good? He says, is that not evil when you offer up that which you know is blemished and like the worst of what you have or the least of what you have? Sure, you're offering up something and everybody can see you doing it. But is it not evil to do what you're doing? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors. Just, you know what, if we're going to be like that, everybody leave, and for the love of God, literally, somebody lock the door and quit letting people into the worship service who are just going to go through the motions in a half-hearted, sincere manner. That's what's being explained here. Oh, that there was one among you, just one who would shut the dang door. That, that's paraphrased, it doesn't say that. <laughs> that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you, my people... Profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. So what he's describing is he's saying, hey, quit bringing your one-eyed, three-legged lamb and thinking that I'm going to be okay with that as a pure sacrifice. And... And quit when I, God, tell you that that is, an, that is not okay. Don't respond to me with, oh, what a pain in the neck. This God, this, this guy, oh, so, he really wants us to bring the best every time. Yes, but that's their response. Their response is, what a weariness this is. You want me to show up every time for corporate worship? wholehearted, singing wholehearted with my heart ready and actually pay attention to the whole hour-long sermon. Every t- What a weariness this is. And then they snort at it. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, that is you bring as your offering. That would be like saying, I made a good profit this week by stealing money from people. I'm going to give a tenth of it to God. Or probably like 9% because of where you're at in life. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. It'd be like, I will give, I'm going to vow for all these people this great uh, uh, majestic animal that's pure, and then when no one's looking, he grabs the one that's all jacked up and puts it on the altar and lights it on fire. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And listen to this. He doesn't stop with the worshipers. He says, and now, O priests, this, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. 
Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. This is God talking. And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your messed up offerings. And you shall be taken away with it. The dung was supposed to be burned outside of the camp. So what he's implying is, you're bringing a curse on yourself by allowing your people to come in here and offer a bunch of half-hearted worship. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the dung of that jacked up animal you brought to worship, I'm going to spread it on your face. And it's going to be a shame. It's going to be your curse. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people, should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you, you priests, have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi. You're nothing like Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. This particular piece of uh, Scripture here um, is... uh, is dear to me in a weird way. Um, this is what Ben actually chose to preach at my ordination. The dung in the face sermon. Yeah. And so the encouragement was be a proper priest. And obviously the warning was if you're not, dung in the face. And so I had a nice little inscription in the front of my study Bible that came with that. Um, but the call's pretty high here. So here's a few things we need to look at. Um, worship of God involves not only what we do, but how we do it. Sincerity was not enough. God cares about how you do the things. Like we kind of, I think, sometimes promote this thing of, man, as long as you show up and you really you know, believe that worshiping song is something and you believe that something may happen during the sermon, um, that's, that's, man, God, that's enough. And no, that's not enough, apparently. It's, God cares about the details of your worship, not just that it's sincere that you're sincerely here or that you're sincerely doing something because you can be sincerely wrong if it's being done wrong. God did not simply want whatever they could spare. He wanted their best. God is real. What that means, as long as we can always remember that God is real, we can always remember that God's holiness is real and that our sin is real. So this returns us to that original question about sincerity. Sincerity is not enough because you can be sincerely wrong. Even when they were called out by God, they questioned why He thought the way that he did, and they thought that what they were doing was actually acceptable because of how they viewed him. You understand that? They thought bringing lame, busted animals as sacrifices, as their worship, was okay because of how they viewed God. Y'all following this line of thinking? They thought it was okay because of how they viewed God. How might we be guilty of the same things today? thinking something's okay that's in fact not okay because of how we view God. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's not just to bring God anything but your best. So they're saying, well, we'll move in an unjust manner because God's unjust. You see what's going on here? Their view of him was wrong. So they thought what they were doing was actually right. What are some other examples of how that might play into how we move? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. This sort of worldwide kumbaya pacifistic thing. We We can take it too far. When we don't take into account all the truth about God. How else might it play in? Yeah. You become very casual with no fear of God if you, if you view him as like, he doesn't really care. I mean, you'll, you'll tiptoe around the sin of other people. Like, man, we're all human. 
Yeah, which means you all need to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we'll look at sin in our own lives and be like, well, that's just who I am. No, he never meant for you to be defined by that. Those are the kind of lies that creep in. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep, they're looking at the Edomites who are flourishing, and they're saying, apparently God doesn't hate sin as much. So their view of sin in their own lives and the lives of the people they walk with is going to be very badly affected by that. I mean, we could look at, you name whoever terrorist group, and say, well, they're flourishing. They haven't been stomped out by the mighty hand of God. They haven't been struck by lightning and killed. They haven't been, the earth hasn't opened up and swallowed them up. So you know what? I'm seeing all these people suffer, even Christians suffering, and I'm thinking, well, does he care? It is easy to think like this. I mean, this is not just people on a faraway land long, long ago who think in weird ways. They're exactly like us. And the, the, the way that, that the timing and the background of Malachi is so similar to what we have today. Um, God wanted to know whether the Israelites were willing to bring their best to God. Because of that, God was also interested in teaching the people that a sacrifice for their sins must be perfect. Why was it important for God to teach his people over 1,500 years that sacrifice for sin must be perfect? Because it points to Christ. Consider how little Christ would be appreciated if God allowed 1,500 years of lame, half-hearted, three-legged, one-eyed, busted sacrifices. Behold the Lamb of God. We got lots of lambs. You know what I'm saying? You see how like it's, um, Ben has described it as a 1,500-year tutor, that sacrificial system. It wasn't just some weird thing that we had as you know, sort of this go-between. It was a tutor. It, it, it learned us up. To, to understand the importance of a pure sacrifice. So when people are bringing impure, half-hearted, still sincere sacrifices, it's a total misrepresentation of what God requires because a perfect sacrifice is what's required for sin. The wages of sin is death. So it takes a perfect sacrifice to cover sin. So it was never okay for the priests and the people who were in charge of the church to say, hey, uh, whatever, just, just bring whatever. We don't care. I mean, think, think about how that works. The priests ate because of the sacrifices that were brought. They, their, their, their nourishment to survive was in large part because of the sacrifices that were brought by the worshipers. So if the worshipers get, you know, distracted by the cares of the world, maybe things aren't as good... Look how easy it would be for the priests to go, hey man, bring whatever. Who cares? We hungry. You see what I'm saying? Bring whatever. We need to buy some stuff that we need. It would be like the leadership of this church saying, we don't care if it is wholehearted. We don't care if it is a tithe. We don't care if you have prayed about it. Just bring us some money. Did I leave a bad taste in anyone's mouth? Is that noble? Is that of high character? Does that even remotely represent who we are and what we have in Christ? Uh, we have to take note of how the leadership is held accountable. I would encourage you to take this into account the next time you wish leadership would keep their nose out of your business. Trust me, I don't enjoy getting up in anyone's business. Neither does the other leadership here. And if we see that someone is enjoying it a little too much, we call that person on it. Because <laughs> any of us can become guilty of that. But they're held to a pretty high regard here because what they're saying is, you should have locked the door. You should have not let them in. Don't lead your people into a place where they're doing things completely wrong, where it's despising God. It's not a little bit okay if it's like a lot wrong. That's not how it works. So, Look at 2.10. In 2.10, we see something else. 
It's interesting. Um, Have we not all one Father? Um, Has not one God created us all? Why then are we faithless to one another? Judah has been faithless. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob and descend to the man who does this and who brings the offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why not? Because the Lord has been, was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. There's a footnote there because there are parts of Scripture where uh, divorce, there there are grounds for possible divorce. But in general, God doesn't want it, especially when when it's just because you don't like someone anymore. That's what we're getting at here. And by, by marrying people who you're not equally yoked with, or by divorcing people just, just out of the fact you don't like them anymore, are two terrible things in the eyes of the Lord because they misrepresent God. What's being stated here is that worship of God involves how we treat others, particularly our spouse. In choosing your spouse, you demonstrate what God you choose. And in remaining faithful to that spouse, you demonstrate faithfulness to God. The big biblical example is when Ahab took Jezebel to be, like no one names their kid Jezebel anymore, right? (laughs) Why is that? Because you don't want him to be a Jezebel, right? And so, if you know someone named Jezebel, it's just uninformed. Don't worry about it. But, um, but here, I mean, what, what he's saying is, is <clears throat> there may be grounds for divorce in the Bible. But he's saying, don't be flipping about this. Don't just be blown away to and fro by every wind and wave of whatever cultural thing's going on. Don't divorce someone just because you say you don't like them anymore. That is, that is the noble way which our, our culture handles it, right? Just irreconcilable differences. I don't like them, they're like me. It's done. And, it, and it, it's still hard no matter who goes through it. And I'm aware that there are people in this room that have, that have gone through the pain of a divorce. Even if you have gone through the pain of a divorce, you have to understand God is not okay with the flippancy that his people are, are approaching this in Malachi. He's not okay with this sort of well, it's just I don't like him anymore. Or, you know what? I like this hottie over here who doesn't care about God because that's what some people are doing. So, in, uh, look at 2.17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying that everyone who does evil is good inside the Lord and delights in them. And he goes on. Look at 3.5. He talks about how he refines them and makes them pure. And then he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God tells us that true worship involves how we treat our neighbors. Apparently, these Israelites were going to worship. They were taking an offering. They were presenting it to the priest. It was being burned. There was some aroma that everybody could smell. But somehow, because they were so bitter about their own conditions and frustrated with God that evil people were prospering, they would, in fact, not take care of sojourners. Who's a, what is a sojourner? Stranger, one who travels in another land that's not their home. They were so bitter that they couldn't even take care of someone who needed help, who was a stranger in their country, who was their guest. 
They were so bitter that they couldn't do that while they were still taking their jacked up sacrifices to worship. Dever has a note in his book. He says, a person who's indifferent to injustice should not pretend to be a God worshiper. If you don't care about the injustice of people, stop pretending you love God. If your heart is cold to the topic of injustice, it's cold to something that God cares about. God was never required to care. He doesn't owe that to you. But he cares more deeply than anybody. He did and he does. Because of that, by his design, our relationships with one another testify either for or against the relationship that we have with God. So the relationship that we have with one another, by God's design, because of how much he cares about people, is either evidence for or evidence against a relationship that we claim to have with him. That's why 1 John says, you don't say you hate your brother and love God. You're a liar. It's not okay. Those can't be reconciled. Worship is not just ethereal or private. It necessarily involves other people. There are some of us in here who are like, man, I wish it didn't involve other people. I do so much better on my own in a quiet room with no distractions. But it necessarily involves other people. How we treat our families, how we treat our neighbors, how we treat people we know, how we treat strangers. Indifference to God is opposition to God. So how might this affect our view towards Syrian refugees? I just threw the grenade in the middle of the room. I'm going to do it. And normally in my notes, I write a loud conversation. On this part, I wrote guide the conversation because it can get real out of hand real quick. But how might this affect the heart of the Christian towards the Syrian sojourner? I want to offer up that safety is a myth. Some of us just need to just swallow that hard pill. I probably value safety more than anyone in this room. I'm a very overprotective father. My side job that I've had since I was a teenager was installing security systems in people's residences and places of business. Over and over again, I have found what the most vulnerable spot is. I've eliminated the risk and made it more secure. Said thank you at the end of the day. Since I was 15 years old. I love safety. Safety is a, a myth. We're not promised that. We, we have things to say like provided you suffer. So here's what I would offer. I think we have a mad oversimplification of Facebook solutions. I'm sitting there reading everything, struggling, saying, well, what do I feel about this? Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, when you have something so complex, it takes a solution that can't be solved in a stinking Facebook post. Because we have this view right now that's largely pervasive of either you are a compassionate Christian and you are ready for 10,000 Syrian refugees to come in tomorrow, no questions asked. Or you're a bigot and you hate people who aren't white Americans. It's like this really ridiculous, extreme perspective. And it's like if, if we could but reason together, maybe there's something in the middle where this problem's far more complex than what a lot of Christians are spending their time on right now. And, and I would offer, on top of it being far more complex than yes or no, your heart needs to be right in view of people who are sojourners. God is saying, 
You weary and despise me because I'm going to come and judge the, the, the wrongs that you're doing. And one of those wrongs is you're against those who, he's going to be against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Thrusting aside the sojourner is sort of a flippant reaction of a move. You might not be trustworthy. It's not worth the risk. I promise if you're a Christian, God will call you to take a risk by sharing the gospel with someone that may be dangerous. That's the world we live in. And it's hard. We have to reckon with that. Some of us are like, man, if there's any risk, let's eliminate it. I'm terrible about that. In this situation, it's not this black or white thing. If one does get it, if, if many do get it, if one Syrian refugee comes into your neighborhood, would you make the most of an opportunity to love them if you had the opportunity? Or would you lock your door and get an extra lock for your door just in case and avoid them just in case? Like really, these are like heart questions that we have to work through because there will be some measure of risk that God's people are called to when it comes to sharing the gospel. Yeah, yeah, there are many, there are many different uh, organizations and churches and church affiliations and groups and mission organizations that are doing some amazing things there, and there are, there are certainly opportunities. Um, but I just, I, I, tonight, I mean, gosh, we could spend the next two hours talking about this, couldn't we? Um, but tonight, I just want us to consider, is, is your heart what God wants your heart to be in this particular situation? Because it's so interesting, the timing of Malachi and the timing of where we are tonight. So just, is there any way, any way that Scripture needs to affect your heart? Is there any way that God's admonishment of His people at this time needs to admonish you? Is there any encouragement that you need to have here? In the last part, turn over to the last verse, and I'm going to read it real quick. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the hand with a decree of utter destruction. I want to encourage you to go read Mark chapter 9 with your families. It's uh, the Mount of Transfiguration where, oh, look, it's Elijah, just like it was said. Oh, and Moses is there, and Jesus is there, and Jesus is transfigured. And so there's these fulfillment of prophecies there that, um, I don't know, for us, I look at this and I think how fitting it is at the end of the Old Testament with an encouragement uh, that our only hope is Christ. That's the whole reason Elijah came back, because it was time. Yeah, we're short on time, so go for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So on December 9th in this room, we're going to have a night of recounting where I want to hear as many stories like that as we can possibly get. And we're also going to start a little campaign online on Crosspoint recounting. And I want to hear many of those recountable things just like that where, oh, there was a risk. There was a, a, something I stepped into that had some risk. And what a beautiful blessing. Many people have that. Our encouragement tonight is um, Elijah came, Christ is risen from the dead. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's very real. It's not hard for us to see it. So here's the encouragement for us as we end our Old Testament survey study. Worship God properly and wholeheartedly. Do not allow yourself to become bitter 
or driven by fear, no matter what happens with the circumstances. Love your spouse. Never forget that all of your money belongs to God. Care for the sojourner and the oppressed at every opportunity that you have. Give your all to God. Fear God and hope in God alone, and that will never be a life that is lived in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we're very thankful for the many blessings you've given us. Um, There's so much here in Malachi that we could spend a lot of time on, but um, we thank you for getting to end our study on this note of hope in Christ and pray that we would be willing to do whatever Christ calls us to do um, in life. We love you. We thank you for the prophecies. We thank you for the fulfillment that they find in Christ and for what we get to walk in today as those on this side of the cross. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. No studies next week or the week after, but then December 9th, we're going to be back in here. You'll be getting a bunch of information via email about our night of recounting. It's going to be round tables, coffee, dessert, and just spending about an hour and a half or two hours talking about how good God is and what he's done over the course of 2015. So y'all make that a priority. Thank y'all.